Okay, to one another and in praise to our God, when will we dwell in Zion? With a certain longing expectation for going home when this world will be a thing of the past, where in my estimation we will not even remember this world anymore. Because if the Bible tells us that there are no tears in heaven, I don't want to be thinking about the difficulties associated with this world. We're looking forward to that place called Zion, heaven, the new Jerusalem. It has many names in the course of scripture, and we're glad that you are concerned about going there as well. I'd like to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading there in just a moment or two. As we think about the fact that we are odd, you and I as Christians are odd men and women. I'm not talking about because of your idiosyncrasies or your personal habits that you have. I'm talking about the fact that we as a group of Christians are odd. We are called a peculiar people, according to the Apostle Paul late in the New Testament when he writes to Titus. We are an odd group of people. And you may think I'm the most normal person that is here this morning. He's calling me odd. Yes, I'm calling you odd if you are a child of God. Because Christianity is all about the oddity associated with it. And I want to really focus in on just three or four verses here of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in just a moment. As we're preparing there, I wanted to join with our brothers who've already welcomed those who are here this morning that are visiting. Some of you are here for the first time in quite some time. Some of you are here for the first time ever, and we are glad that you are here. And we've made reference to the fact that we have a number of our members who are traveling away. It's that time of year, and there are various causes that they are attending and being a part of away from us. And so there are some holes in the building, we've said a couple of times. There'll be no holes in heaven, H-O-L-E-S, but there will be a hole in heaven, W-H-O-L-E. And that will be something that will be spectacular to witness and a spectacular thing to see. When we look around, there'll be no one traveling. You won't say, so-and-so is sick today. No, we will all be there, no tears. O Zion, I long thy gates to see. So if you would open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and what I'd like to do is to begin reading in verse 20 and continue down into the first couple of verses of chapter 6 and then make some introductory observations about the text itself. He says that we then are ambassadors for Christ. That's a subject in and of itself. As though God were pleading through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now, as we continue, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says... In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We'll stop there at verse 2, and we'll continue on in just a moment. When we think about Christianity, what we are doing, what we are a part of, the very lives that we live in service to God, it is odd as viewed by the world and by worldly standards. 
you and I are here today worshiping a God that we cannot see physically, singing songs, listening to someone talk about a book that the world looks at as being filled with fiction and frailty. And we are doing these things not because someone is forcing us to do it, but because we want to do it. We are voluntarily giving our money. We are eating bread and fruit of the vine. We are doing things that seem out of the ordinary and odd to those in the world. And it seems to me that that oddity was associated with New Testament Christianity in New Testament times as well. And so I want us to explore just at the outset here the context of what we're talking about here. We read in verse 20 where he talks about ambassadors of Christ, where Paul is begging these Corinthians to be these ambassadors. And what does it mean to be an ambassador? That's beyond the scope of our study this morning, but we are representatives of our king. And we do not share our own messages or our own desires, but we carry the message that he wants to the world that we are serving and ambassadors to. We also read there in verse 2 that Paul stresses an urgent nature of being obedient and being God's servants. That isn't a passive thing. That is a very active thing. We've got to do it, and we've got to do it today. Drop down to verse 4, where he says, In all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And then he goes through this list, and we're going to talk about the second half of the list, where in verse 4 he says, In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, being sleepless, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul says that nothing can stand in the way of us doing his work, his being Christ's work. And we've got a, a mission ahead of us to go into all the world and preach, to live righteously, to live soberly, to be present in doing what God has asked us to do. But then in the next three verses, which I understand is a sentence break, there's no period at the end of verse 7, at least in my version, but there's a comma at the end of verse 7. Then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he makes a series of what I count around nine statements or nine comparisons where he uses opposites and draws them together to make some sort of conclusion that provides for what I call the oddity of Christianity or odd opposites. Let's read verses 8 through 10, and then I want us to delve into the text and use the text as our outline today. And verse 8 says, by honor and dishonor. So those are opposites. We know that. Then he says, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and as having nothing yet possessing all things. If we're not careful, this is one of those texts that to me, As a student of God's word, I could read through and say, okay, I'm not really sure what was just said there, but let me go on to something else. I've read it. I can check the box that I've read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, but did I really digest what was in those verses? 
to digest that, let's spend the next few moments talking about the text itself. And like I said, I count there nine different uh, comparisons, or you could label it as 18 different words or statements. And we're going to use that as our outline today. And hopefully you'll understand where I'm going. This may be one of those sermons where uh, you don't realize where he's going until he's gone there. But we're going to go there, and then we will have gone And we will have figured out what we're talking about. I want us to start with this first concept of honor and dishonor. There in verse 8, he says, by honor and by dishonor. He says, these are the things, it's this long sentence that goes all the way back to verse 4, that in all things we commend ourselves. He says, we do so by honor and by dishonor. If you're reading from the uh, New American Standard or the NIV this morning, and we'll use some alternative versions this morning, it says, by glory and by dishonor. And we know what glory means. Our brother David talked about that just a few days ago, a few weeks ago in one of his uh, studies with us. But the fact is, is our choices are designed to bring glory to God. And that's a very important point that I have made on a number of occasions, but I want to make it on another occasion. And that is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, where it says that let your good works be seen by men. I'm paraphrasing a little bit broadly, that when they see your good works, that your father in heaven may be glorified. And what we often do, and when I say we, I'm talking about you, but I'm also talking about me, is when someone sees the good that I have done, I kind of feel good about that. And there's nothing wrong with that. God has made it to feel like when you're honest or when you're kind or when you're, uh, you're going to be uh, giving someone the benefit of the doubt, that you feel good about doing what's right. But rather than saying, well, thank you for complimenting me, why not say thank you for complimenting me But more importantly, thank you for recognizing that I'm trying to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ because I want to give the glory back to him. I want him to be the focus of all the compliments I receive. I don't want people to say, well, he's such a good preacher. He's such a good Bible class teacher. He's so so good at cooking or she's so good at, at making calls. God gets the glory for those things. But that very choice will cause the world to dishonor us. Remember Job? Here he was doing everything he could to remain righteous and faithful in service to God. And he has attacks coming from the left and the right, from the front and the back. And he understands that sometimes in this life there's honor and dishonor. There are times where people are going to say good things about you. And there are times when people are going to say bad things about you. And we must always remember that when they say good about us, the glory belongs to God. When they say evil about us, remember that it's not we that are being rejected, but ultimately that it is God being rejected. So we'll spend just two or three minutes on each of these things. I want to go ahead to number two here, where he talks about the evil report and good report. The English Standard Version says, by slander and by praise. Slander is a very strong word. In fact, there are legal precedents for what it means to be slandered. In fact, people will go to court if they feel like they have been slandered in public or by praise. When Christians make choices to do good, we praise each other. But ultimately, where does that praise belong? It belongs to God himself. We say, that Christian, my brother or sister, did good. 
Praise be to God. We don't ever say praise be to Brother Smith or Sister Jones. We say praise be to God. Or at least we had better do that. But this same behavior opens ourselves up to attacks of non-Christians. That when we try to do good and make good choices, that others in the world will look at you and say, why are you making those choices that are going to put yourself at a disadvantage, knowing full well that you are not going to benefit from it? When we flip it around, we say, well, I am going to benefit from it. Because as we sometimes say, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Had someone just sing that to me a couple days ago while getting out of the car, right? And so I appreciate that very much. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. This is not what I'm here for. Oh, Zion, lovely Zion, I long thy gates to see. So by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. And then thirdly, he says, as deceivers and yet being truthful. I really like the NIV here, uh, uh, the way that it uses the word genuine. He says, we are genuine or genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Have you ever had someone accuse you as a Christian of being an imposter? Or I'm going to use the H word, a hypocrite. And it hurts when people say that about us. And part of the, the danger is, is we live in a religious world where people lump all of Christianity. And I'll put that in big, broad quotes under a huge umbrella. And they'll put that in the same category. And so what ends up happening is that the true hypocrisy that we see sometimes in denominational beliefs and sects and practices, those things are then associated with those of us who are trying our very best to not be imposters, but we're trying to be genuine. I am genuinely trying to save you because of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides to all men. Remember that New Testament times were filled with men attempting to teach their own ideas, and they were imposters. Which is why, going back to what Brother Creech talked about earlier in our Lord's Supper talk this morning, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just another imposter, just another fake uh, evil, uh, good doer who's actually evil. And those are the things that Jesus had to put up with. Those are the things that the, the earliest of the apostles and disciples had to deal with. And in fact, if you go and read the book of Acts, all 28 chapters, especially the second two-thirds, you will see where Paul understood that he'd have to uh, have that charge leveled at him or against him if he served God. And so he and the other apostles routinely had imprisonments and beatings and homelessness and shipwreck because they were sticking to what was true and being genuine. The world looks at us and says, you are not genuine. And we say, I'm going to try my best to be genuine. And so we're kind of caught in that place, but we just keep on keeping on. Number four in our list of nine is, without a doubt, my favorite. I love number four for the reasons that I think you'll see here in just a moment, where he says, as unknown and yet well-known. I don't want to, again, make you discouraged, but I do want to make you aware of the fact that it's unlikely that the world will ever remember you or ever remember me. 
Maybe our grandchildren will remember us. Perhaps our great-grandchildren. Perhaps if you've written an article that was really good in a bulletin, someone will quote you 100 years from now, but likely no. That's okay. It's okay. Think about the people that would be listed on the left of this screen. These are people that are not children of God, at least based on what we know about their lives. But when you think about individuals like Plato and great philosophers, when you think about individuals like Magellan, who uh, went around the world some 500 years ago, think about Queen Elizabeth, the first or the second, take your pick. These four all have in common the fact that they have all passed away. Abraham Lincoln, Nelson Mandela. These are all important people who played roles in the world in which we know. Some of them in our own lifetimes, right? And the world will always remember these people. A hundred years from now, if the world exists a thousand years from now, the people will still know these people's names. And they'll go down in history. Compare that to the right. And if you would give me a little latitude to... Uh, wax for a moment on my family tree and those that were important to me. Some of you know that name. A few of you do from Tennessee history. But I think about preachers that I've known. Alden McKee, who passed away some 20 years ago. No one will ever remember his name. None of you have probably, well, you've probably heard of Robert Jackson here in, in Tennessee. I think about preachers that shaped me and preachers that helped me. I think about Nick Skelton, an elder who served at the church in Plainfield back in the 1940s and 50s, long before my time, but yet set the groundwork so that I could grow up in a strong congregation. I think about my great uncle, Thomas Long. If I preached this sermon in certain places in, in the Midwest or in Indiana, there'd be people who would be crying by this point because these are names that made reference to them. I've made reference to my friend who passed away some 25 years ago, Everett Dickey who was just an incredible man. And then I think about people will never remember Roscoe Ping. I will, but I'll remember Roscoe. You see, on the left are names of people that the world will know. On the right are names that God still knows. Then I think about, I think about Jim Johnson. And I think about Bill Souter. And I think about so many other men and women. We've got 16 widows, I think someone was saying, 14, 16 widows here with faithful men at their side for all those years. Those are names that the world will never remember. But better to be remembered by God than be remembered by the world. Better that God says, that's my servant and here in verse 9, he says, as unknown and yet well known. You see, the names of people that have passed from our lives and people that have meant something to us are names of individuals that God knows and God appreciates. And that's what matters the most. I love number five, where it says we are dying, but yet we are living. Someone would say, that makes no sense to me. Someone from the world says, that makes no sense. When you're dying, you're dying. <laughs> and when you're living, you're living. But we are dying, but yet we are living as outlined in verse nine. Behold, we live. 
In fact, the NIV says that we live on. You know, the world measures life by death. We have hope for something that is different. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And then Paul goes on and he's writing to these Corinthians and he's saying, I've had difficult times. I'm going to have difficult times. You're going to have difficult times, but it's okay. And he says in verse 9, he says, we are persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. The life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then in verse 12, so then death is working in us, but life is in you. You see, we are in the process of dying. Someone probably is going to walk away from this sermon and only hear those two or three points on the, on the more uh, shaded negative side. So that's the most depressing sermon I've heard all year. We're dying and we're nobodies. <laughs> but we are dying and we are nobodies in the world's point of view. But we are living and great big somebodies in God's vision. And that matters the most. And that's all that matters. And indeed, we are individuals who say, I'll do what the Lord wants me to do, and I'll stick to his side. Christians need to be reminded that we die so that we can live. We do not want to live so that we can die. You, know, you see all these memes on social media. You see these things in popular news about the idea of live your best life and live it to the fullest and nothing wrong with planning for retirement, nothing wrong with uh, those kinds of things. But we've got to understand that the things that matter the most is preparing for the day that we die, that I am ready. That's the day. It is appointed for men to die once, the Hebrew writer says, and after that is the judgment. Brings us to our our final four uh, comparisons. One is that we are chastened and yet not killed. We just recently finished a study of 2 Samuel, and in our study of 2 Samuel on Wednesday nights, one of the things we talked about is that sometimes chastening meant that you were going to be killed physically, literally, real. Uh, And that is not the case for us. We are chastened and yet not killed. We are, according to the English Standard Version, we are punished yet not killed. Think of all the punishments that Paul endured. Think of all the different things that I always, always find it interesting when he talks about this light affliction that we are going through. And you can go and read later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, where he goes through that long list of things of all the perils of the deep and all the different challenges that he had to endure. And we've got to remember, and I, it's easy for me to say, although this is getting This is harder for me to say now than it was 10 years ago. And that is, we need to remember that things could certainly be a whole lot worse, right? Say, well, you don't understand the pain that I go through. And that's true. I don't deal with chronic pain. Notice I said 10 years ago, this was easy. It's starting to creep in. If If I move my hand a certain way, the arthritis is, yes, it's starting to kick in here on my left hand. Just, I, I have someone, some of you are saying, bless his heart. 
He's got arthritis in his finger. But I can feel it now. I'm coming up on a birthday in a few weeks. And one more number. One day closer to the grave. This is the greatest sermon ever. (laughs) But we are approaching the grave. And it can be a whole lot worse. You know what's worse? Is a person who does not have Jesus Christ in his life and faces death. That's worse. You may have chronic pain and there are people who are here who are sitting right now and you are in pain. Physically. And there are people who are here who are in emotional pain because you're thinking about someone that you care about that is gone. There are people here who are experiencing emotional pain because someone you care about is no longer living faithful in service to God. But it could be worse. You could be without Christ. Now we've got to do everything we can to share that message with others. Number seven, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now, God never promised that we'd have perfect, splendid, carefree lives. But in spite of this, we have lots of blessings to appreciate and to rejoice over. Let me just share with you three passages here real quickly that came to mind. One of those is in Romans chapter 5, which we will be studying in about six or seven weeks. And I appreciate Carrie leading us through Romans and doing such a good job of starting us out today. Hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, and perhaps one of the most quoted verses in all of 1 Peter, Peter writes and he says, you cast all your care on him because he cares about you. Or in John's first recorded letter, 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 1, I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, John says, you have an advocate with the Father that is Jesus the Christ. Those are encouraging verses. Those are encouraging passages that remind us of the fact that God says, you may have a lot of sorrows in this life. You may have a lot of setbacks in this life. And you're going to have a lot of things that happen that cause you to go on your knees in tears. But you can still rejoice. We can rejoice because of the hope that we have. That sounds odd to people in the world that we are happy in spite of our sufferings. But we are happy in spite of our sufferings. Number eight, poor and yet making rich. You know, there are plenty of people who are rich and they're actually making the world poorer. Think about that for a moment. There are a lot of people in the world with a lot of money. And I'm talking about lots of money. And they're making the world poorer. You see, this poor to the rich concept involves two very specific things. One of those is to keep the right perspective. Beware, light does not exist in the abundance of the things that he has. Beware of covetousness, Jesus would say. And our mission is to help others to do the same, as is outlined in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 21. In the book of Second Opinions of mine that I quote from, we find sometimes a great frustration, and I think you would agree with me, wherein people of the world, parents and grandparents of the world say, I want my children to do better than me financially. 
And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's, that's okay. I want my children to have a better education than I had. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. We want those things for our children, for our grandchildren or grandchildren to be. But I've often said and have a firm belief that I'd rather have the people that I care about and the people that I love to be poor, to be making minimum wage or less for the rest of their lives and be a faithful child of God than to make some huge difference in society but spend their eternity separated from him. I think you all agree with me on that. Think about your children. Think about your children, those of us who have children, whether they be faithful or not. You think about the fact that sometimes they're not living as they should. Those of you that have younger children, you're still trying to train them in the way that they should go. You'd rather have them poor at age 60 and going to heaven than be rich at age 60 and destined to hell. We all agree on that. But the world says, that's crazy. That's nonsense. What matters is good jobs and good retirement and fancy vacations and nice cars. And while those things are okay for us to have in moderation, we've got to understand that we are poor people, but yet we are rich. Someone once said in response to, tell me about your family. So I'm rich. What do you mean you're rich? Yeah, my father is a king. (laughs) That's true of us. Our father is the king. And we are rich because we have been adopted into his family. And then number nine and finally, having nothing and yet possessing all things. From a worldly perspective, Paul made a horrible choice. Remember what the choice he made was? He, He left the council He left the role of a Pharisee. He left a role as a leading and educated Jew who could have done something for himself, put that in big quotes, and he went and he followed the way. Who did he follow? He followed Jesus. What was Jesus? An oddity. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but from a worldly point of view, and especially in the first century, Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth in the first place. But Paul says, I'm going to follow him to the death. And as secular history records for us, indeed, he went to his death, losing his life, or more appropriately, giving his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He gave up the good life for being the follower in a fringe, offbeat religion called the way, eventually called Christianity, and all of its oddities. And he says, I'll do that. That makes sense to me. And there are people who are here this morning. I know for sure that your family does not understand why you're here. And they think that you're odd. And that's okay. Take on that mantle with a sense of, yes, I am odd. (laughs) It's odd being a Christian in the world's point of view. But the only way to possess everything is to serve Jesus Christ. That's how we have all things. And, you know, we have a wide variety of, I don't know everyone's tax returns. You haven't submitted them to me, and I'm not asking for them. But we have a wide variety of socioeconomic makeups just in this congregation. My guess would be even in a congregation a a fourth of this size, you're still going to have a wide variety of incomes 
and net worth and all those things. We have people here who are doing well that don't have a lot of debt and are, are comfortable with their lives. And then we have people that I'm sure are living paycheck to paycheck. And that's okay. Because that doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is I may not have anything in this life, but I have everything because of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with this brief passage in John chapter 14 and verse 2. And hopefully by now you know where I was going in our study together today. But I want to conclude with John 14. With, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful words ever uttered by Jesus himself. He says, let not your heart be troubled. And we've talked a lot about troubles today. A lot about challenges as we've dealt with the oddity of Christianity. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Isn't that beautiful? That language, if that doesn't comfort you, I'm not sure what's wrong with you. Because that's beautiful language. And it's true. It's not just poetry. It's not just something written. It's the words of our Savior who says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. And whether you are a widow or a widower, whether you are married or never been married, whether you are young or old, whether you're a male or a female, we are all destined to stand before our God on the day of judgment and to give an answer for the way that we have lived our lives. Let us even though we are dying in this world, live for Jesus. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, we are, are begging and to use the word that we started with at the outset of our study, we are imploring you to become a Christian, to say it's, it's time for me to, to live my life more dedicated to God than ever before. And that includes becoming a child of God. The vast majority of those who are present are Christians, it's not discounting the fact that if you need to become a Christian, we want you to be baptized today, but maybe you need to make some sort of public confession or a public acknowledgement of the need to make a change going forward. We would welcome that opportunity. If there's something private that you would like to discuss, we stand ready to talk to you. Let us know, even at the conclusion of services, and we'll study with you further. If we can help you to join the oddity of Christianity and to benefit from its blessings. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.